Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. The general public calls it D-Day, but Allied forces in World War II called it Operation Overlord. On June 6, 1944, forces from the United States, Great Britain, Canada, and nine other countries landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of France's Normandy coast. Their objective was to turn the tide of the war in favor of the Allies by liberating France from German forces, and then to take back the rest of Northwest Europe pushing Germany back into their, their borders. Although the objective seemed simple, the planning was extremely complex. Operation Overlord required more than a year of detailed planning to stage over 11,000 aircraft, 7,000 ships, and 156,000 troops from 12 different countries. Of course, we know from history that the operation cost many lives, but the invasion was a success, and it did turn the tide and tilt the momentum of World War II. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul is in the process of staging his own operation overlord. So he can take back ground in chapter 2, that has been lost in the Colossian church. The enemy is not Hitler's Third Reich or the Nazis, but instead the enemy is false teachers. And the battle is over the true identity and deity of Jesus Christ. We're continuing our series in the book of Colossians today called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 1. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan one to you. Colossians chapter 1. I want to also encourage you to take out the um, sermon note handout that's in your worship folder. Uh, It is incomplete for the first time in several weeks. I want to acknowledge that. I hope that you might endure writing out some complete sentences this morning. I know it's the first time in a long time, but... Um, I, we had to send the, the, the worship folder to the printer earlier this week than normal before I had my outline done. So there will be a complete outline on the keynote screen behind me. Um, as you turn there, let me just bring you up to speed and briefly review the backstory on uh, the book of Colossians. Uh, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of four letters that he wrote in prison during his first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, About 60 to 62 AD is when he was there for about two years, and he wrote four letters in total. Uh, Colossians is one. The other three are Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And so they are commonly called the prison epistles. Uh, Paul wrote Colossians after the founder of the church in Colossae, which is a city in Asia Minor, the founder of that church, a man named Epaphras, traveled to go visit Paul while he was in prison in Rome and asked for his help uh, dealing with false teachers who were invading the church. 
A false teacher is anyone who adds to, subtracts from, or substitutes content in God's Word. False teachers are usually not overt in their attempts to lead naive sheep astray from the faith. Instead, they are usually more covert. They, um, in fact, one of their most successful tricks is dethroning Jesus and enthroning people in the church to make people more important than Jesus. You might remember also I shared last week that there are three key words. Uh, I forgot to put these on the, uh, the uh, keynote slides behind me, but I'll just rattle them off real quick for you. Three key words in the book of Colossians. They are head, Lord, and Christ. Head, Lord, and Christ are the three key words. Uh, these are words that are either used frequently by Paul or he gives them a lot of weight, depending on the context. And so I'll be referring to these words throughout the series. One word, in the first word, head, the first key word there, is going to come up today in the passage that we're looking at today, and I'll be explaining what it means. Now, the Apostle Paul tries to inoculate the church in Colossae from this covert operation being launched by false teachers by indirectly and directly throughout his letter, declaring that Jesus Christ is supreme. And because he is supreme, he is sufficient. And because he's sufficient, he should be superior in our lives. It's so, uh, thus, our big idea for today is this. When it comes to the church, that's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 1. When the church becomes all about us, it's no longer all about him. And that's bad. And this is happening at a very scary rate in America, in American churches. When, when the church becomes all about us, it's no longer all about him. You need to know that one of the most cunning heresies that exists in America today is that the church of Jesus Christ solely exists to serve you and me. That is not why it exists. In today's passage, Paul is staging his theological assets just like an Operation Overlord. And he's doing so with the power of his pen before he launches an all-out attack in chapter 2 on these false teachers. The apostle fears that this infant church in Colossae will fall to the adversary and the dark side if something isn't done quickly to change its course. And so in the verses we're going to be looking at, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he answers at least two questions. The first being, what place should Jesus have in the life of a believer? What place should he have in the life of a believer? And the second question he answers is, why is Jesus uniquely qualified to be the head of the church? Now, I realize before we read the verses today, verses 15 through 20, I just want to give you a heads up. There's some heady vocabulary in this passage, but I'm going to do my best to break it down so it's easy for all of us to understand. And, and what I don't want to happen is for you to miss the importance of the passage because of the lofty language that Paul uses. The importance of these six verses cannot be overstated. In fact, 
Why is the passage so important? Well, because it's all about the deity and identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, it matters because, as A.W. Tozer once said, and famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is because what we believe about Jesus drives what we say, what we think, and what we feel every day. And so Paul gives us four reasons why Jesus should be first in the church and why he should be supreme in the life of the believer. If you would look at verse 15, Paul says he is referring to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So here's the first point on your outline. He, Jesus is the reflector and representation of God. Remember, we're writing complete sentences out today. It's okay. Next week, I'll just have words for you to fill in. So he is the reflector and representation of God. So when Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the apostle uses a Greek word, the Greek word icon. It means the very substance or essential embodiment of someone or something. Like the head of a president stamped on a coin, or the bust of a Hall of Fame football player, Jesus Christ is the perfect reflector and representation of the invisible God. Even Jesus himself declared this when the disciple Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. In John chapter 14, to which Jesus replied, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Next, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul strengthens his argument that Jesus is God by using another important Greek word here. It's protokonos. Uh, at first glance, it, it, it would appear that Paul means Jesus was the firstborn, like, say, the firstborn son in a family. Um, and then, say, that firstborn son goes on to make everything else in the world. However, that's not what he means. This is because Jesus can't be part of God's creation and then go on to make the rest of creation. That, that doesn't sync up with the rest of Scripture. And so, if Paul intended to communicate that Jesus was the first thing God created, he would have used a different Greek word, actually. And so, protokonos is, is, in this context, it means first in time and first in rank. In other words, Jesus existed before all creation, and he is over all creation. That's what Paul means by he is the firstborn. We see a little evidence of this in Genesis chapter 1, where uh, it's very subtle, but the use of plural pronouns in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our own image. That's, that's a little... A uh, hidden pronoun that refers to the Trinity, the, the pre-existent Christ. And so, um, he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is first in time, first in rank. 
He is over all creation. So, getting back to the title of the sermon and the key question, then why should Jesus be first in the church? Well, Paul's answer so far after verse 15 is, because he's God. He's God. So how do we apply this? Well, one application that comes to mind is, I can trust him with my eternity. Because Jesus is God, and he existed in eternity before the earth was made, that means he'll be around after the earth is gone. And that also means if you've repented of your sin and you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you can have confidence and trust that he will take care of you for eternity as well. So I can trust him with my eternity. Next, let's look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here's the second reason on your outline, the second reason that Paul says Jesus should be first in the church, and that is that Jesus is the originator and sustainer of all things. Jesus is the originator and sustainer of all things, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Now, at first glance, this appears to be referring to monarchies and world governments and politics and so on and so forth, but actually he's referring to um, more than that. You see, one of the false teachings that Paul will attack in chapter 2 is the worship of angels. And so Paul is saying Jesus has dominion and even created the invisible spiritual realm where angels and demons do battle for the souls of men. And so thus Paul is saying here, Jesus is the only one worthy of worship because the angels in the spiritual realm wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. In fact, Hebrews 1.6 and Revelation 5.8 tell us the angels worship Jesus. Thus, we shouldn't be worshiping angels. So, Visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Next, Paul says, in him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create all things, he also manages all of creation. Every law in nature and science exists because Jesus made it and enforces it. The sun rises and sets. Gravity keeps us grounded to this earth. And molecules move because of Jesus' sustaining power. You know, it's interesting, and I, I always enjoy this when I, uh, you know, on my iPhone, I, I use the uh, Apple's news app, and I subscribe to various channels, and I'm kind of a news junkie because I get a lot of good illustrations and introductions from news. And so when I find a good story, I go, ooh, that's good. Email it to myself. I'm going to file it, save it, tag it. So maybe I can use it in this sermon coming up or whatever. Well, I always love it when I see a, like an interesting science article that proves the existence of God. 
this happened a few years ago when the professor of astronomy at uh, University of California in Los Angeles, a man named Benjamin Zuckerman, he wrote a journal article in which he explained how Jupiter plays a role in protecting Earth. I didn't know this, or if I did learn it in science class in high school, I don't remember it. But uh, there's a lot of things I don't remember from high school. But uh, at, at, at the next, as the next neighbor to Earth, um, there's Mars and then Jupiter. Jupiter has a mass 318 times greater than Earth, and thus a much greater gravitational force. And so uh, uh, Professor Zuckerman explains in this journal article that when massive objects that could do great harm to our planet enter our solar system, Jupiter's powerful gravity acts as a, a sort of a vacuum cleaner, sucking comets and asteroids into itself and causing them or causing them to veer away from Earth. Without Jupiter, according to Professor Zuckerman, Earth would be a sitting duck and a big target for comets and asteroids. And additionally, he states that enormous gaseous planets like Jupiter are rare in the universe. There's not many of them around. They're hard to find. But once again, we can see the Lord's design in creation. Having a planet like Jupiter nearby may be rare, but it is certainly not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. So, why should Jesus be first in the church? Paul's answer in verses 16 and 17 is because he created everybody in the church. He created all things. He sustains all things. You're here today and I'm here today because he gave us breath and strength. And as soon as he decides, I'm all done giving you breath, we're gone. So, application. What do we do with that? Well, it means I can trust him to sustain me. You see, the same Jesus who told the oceans where to stop, the mountains where to sit, and the stars where to shine, is the same Jesus who promises to sustain those that know him personally. In Isaiah 40, we're told that because he is the creator of the ends of the earth, Fascinating. Isaiah 40, verses 28 and 29. It's, it's the precursor to the most you know, popular verse that you see on the greeting cards. Because he's the creator of the ends of the earth, Isaiah 40, verse 28, he does not faint or grow weary. Think about that for a second. The Lord doesn't get tired or run out of breath going, oh man, sure is exhausting trying to keep the solar system going keep the earth going, all that. I'm just tired, man. I need to take a break. He doesn't do that. And thus, in verse 29, Isaiah says, that allows him to give power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then it goes on to talk about, for those who wait on the Lord will rise up on eagle's wings, and so on and so forth. But what this means is that if you can trust Jesus Christ to give you eternal life, then you can also trust him to sustain you for a lifetime. And angels can't do that. And that's why Paul says he's the only one worthy of our worship. Next, let's look at verse 18. 
our key verse, our theme verse for this series and the key verse for the book. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here's number three. And by the way, there's four points I'm going to give you today. So we're, we're just cross halftime. We're almost done. So if you're budgeting your space on that blank outline sheet, I just want you to know there's three and then there's four. Okay, so Jesus is the founder and leader of his church. He's the founder and leader of his church. Verse 18, again, the key verse in the book, and in this prime series, because the idea of Christ being the head of the church is the pillar upon which Paul builds the rest of his arguments throughout the rest of the book. Jesus is the head of the body, he says in verse 18. Head comes from the Greek word kephale. It means to have authority over. Nearly every time it's used in the scriptures, it refers to someone of rank or authority. The word also conveys leadership because it sometimes was used in scriptures to refer to the physical head of a person or an animal, as I mentioned last week. Just as our physical head governs where our body goes, Paul uses this word, I think, to convey to us in the Colossians that the church should go where Jesus goes, because Jesus is the head of the church. Next, Paul uses that term firstborn again. He's the firstborn from the dead. And very succinctly, let me just say, he's building Jesus' resume here, and he's basically saying another qualification for Jesus being head of his church is the fact that he was the first and the last person to ever resurrect himself from the dead. Okay, we're looking for some leaders in the church. Okay, you're a businessman, all right. You lead a Bible study. Oh, you resurrected yourself from the dead. You'd qualify. Yeah, you would. Next, Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent. Oh, that's a big word there. Our English language defines preeminence as being above or before others, superior to others, surpassing all others. I'm using the ESV translation. Some other English translations render this supremacy, like the NIV, or um, the New Living Translation renders it, so he is first in everything. The apostle uses an interesting Greek word, that's used only here in the entire New Testament. That's another thing that Bible scholars look for, is they not only look for repetition of words, but they also look for words that are unique to a book. And here, the word that is, is translated supreme or preeminent, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means, in the Greek text, to hold first place. To hold first place. You might just want to circle that word, you put preeminent or superior or first thing. You can just circle in your Bible, just right in the margin. Greek, to hold first place. And then you can impress people at pool parties and barbecues and your small group and tell them these things. But seriously, it's... One of the many reasons this is significant for Colossae is that the false teachers there viewed Jesus as just one of several emanations of God. 
They, they, they view Jesus as just one of several options to get to God or to get to heaven. Thus, they, they wouldn't give Jesus the place of preeminence or superiority. More on this in a couple of weeks, but I want to get very practical here for the next few minutes because as I wrestled with this passage, and it was a hard, it's a harder message for even me to prepare because it is pretty lofty language, and, and it's not... You know, it's, it's not like chapters 3 and 4 where it's, Paul's very practical. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. So, when, unfortunately, when sinners hear that Jesus is the head of the church, they are prone to create ditches that need to be avoided. I've, I've heard this phrase, unfortunately, abused or taken out of context and used to justify certain things in the church that shouldn't happen. So I'm going to do my best to clarify what Paul means and what he doesn't mean. So what does Paul mean when he says Jesus is the head of the church? Well, it means that spiritual authority originates with him, but he delegates it down to pastors, elders, and deacons to lead local churches on his behalf. They are supposed to represent Jesus' interests and they will give an account to him for their leadership. So I like to think of him as like commander-in-chief, okay? Uh, similar to in our government, the president is the commander-in-chief, but there's an org structure in place in our armed forces that, that where you have different layers of leadership that carry out what the commander-in-chief wants done. Now here's what it doesn't mean. And some, unfortunately, have errantly argued this. When Paul says Jesus is the head of the church, it doesn't mean there's no need for leaders or that everyone's a leader in the church. I had a staff pastor who um, had a lot of issues at another church where I was the senior pastor, and um, this staff pastor tried to tell me that everybody was a leader in the church and that Jesus was the only true leader or authority in the church. And, and um, I remember trying to decide, do I unload all the scriptures right now that prove that he's wrong, or should I just let that slide? <laughs> and um, unfortunately, what he was revealing was he, he, he was not in a position of leadership. He was not on elder board. He, he wasn't on senior staff, and he wanted to be, and so he liked to use the, well, Jesus is the head, so therefore I'm on equal plane with everybody else kind of argument. The New Testament makes it clear that local churches have elders who taught doctrine, exercised discipline, and when necessary, provided direction they discipline when necessary, but they always provide a direction. Doctrine, discipline, direction. That's what elders did. So, so it means there is spiritual authority in the church that Jesus delegates to leaders, but it doesn't mean there's no need for leaders because Jesus is the head of the church. He's the commander-in-chief. Next. Jesus being the head of the church means that Jesus is the star of every worship service. We will always and only sing songs to Jesus and about Jesus here at Vanguard. And that's significant because there are some churches in the name of evangelism in the last 30, 40 years, some churches have made people or unbelievers the focus of the service, where even they sing secular songs in the service to try and 
win over unbelievers. It's tragic because they're taking the spotlight off of Jesus and making results and numbers and evangelism the only thing that's most important. And the scriptures never intended that. So it means that anything that might take the spotlight off Jesus should be avoided. Like, for example, I just cringe when I see some churches where, like, the pastoral staff wears their favorite football jersey on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, and they get up in front. I'm like, really? This is, this is what we're... I mean, I like football, but I'm not willing to take the spotlight off Jesus to make everybody like my favorite team or to let them know what team I'm cheering for that day. I can set football aside for an hour and a half to worship Jesus. I, I can do that. And I like football a lot, but I love Jesus more. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we should resist adjusting our ministry methods to reach generations younger than us. Methods and worship styles can evolve with the time so long as the message does not. Next. Um, it means that Jesus' word, the fact that he's head of the church, it means that his word has the final authority in the church. Therefore, if the scriptures say do it, we do it. If the scriptures say don't do it, we don't do it. That doesn't mean, though, everybody can just interpret the Bible the way they want. Some have used this phrase, Jesus had the church. Well, therefore, that means that, you know, priesthood of the believer, I can read my own Bible and interpret it the way I want to, even though I've never been trained how, and I can kind of twist it to make it say what I want it to say. That's bad. You see, because... The Lord uses trained church leaders to teach, interpret, and apply the scriptures for his people. So, when the church becomes all about us, it's no longer all about him. So why should Jesus be first in the church? Paul's answer, because it's his church. It was his idea. He started it. Who are we to hijack it? Isn't that just another reminder of the arrogance and pride of men? They take something that God made, the church, and we're going to change it, turn it into a not-for-profit business enterprise and make it look like the world in order to make it more appealing to the world to where it doesn't look like the church anymore. And we'll put men on a board and call them a board of directors and we won't qualify them biblically to be elders. Instead, we won't call them elders, we'll just call them directors and we'll do all that kind of stuff. But it's... We're going to call it a church even though it's not a church, biblically. It's just pride. So apply application, what do we do? I must resist the temptation to become a consumer at church. I must resist the temptation to become a consumer at church. Please be aware that we live in a world that constantly bombards us all week with messages that encourage us to be selfish. For example, the world says, follow your heart, but the Bible says, do not follow your heart. Your heart's what got you into trouble in the first place with God. It's sinful. The world says, you have rights and deserve to be treated better. But the Bible says, Christ followers are servants that deserve nothing. You have no rights in, in the Lord's kingdom. 
all this, me, this is me-centered messaging from the world that, that's causing immature believers to search for churches with the most important criteria. Can this church meet my needs? Oh, it can't? Then I'm going to go find another church. That's the selfishness that many immature believers are manifesting now. Instead, on the other hand, mature Christ followers don't ask, what can the church do for me? Instead, as they're praying and looking for a church, they ask the question, what can I do for the church? So what does it look like when we put Jesus first in the church? Well, when Jesus is first in the church, we obey his word regardless of how we feel, how inconvenient it is, or how difficult it might be. But when Jesus is not first in the church, our feelings, friends, or family demand an exemption from obeying God's word. When Jesus is first in the church, we make regular worship attendance and getting to church on time a priority in our schedule. But when he's not first in the church, we overcommit our schedules, we get out of bed late, we stay up late Saturday night so that worship attendance gets crowded out or we're kind of missing half the service. That's when Jesus isn't first for us. When Jesus is first in the church, we make time to walk in fellowship with him and with others in a small group. But when he's not first for us, we make excuses for not spending time in God's word or being in a small group. Does that mean something else is first? When Jesus is first in the church, we work for Christ and serve others in the church because we consider it a privilege to serve. Because that's what the word teaches. It's a privilege to serve the king. But when he's not first, we, we claim we're too busy to serve or we expect others to serve us. And if you hadn't noticed, I'm working my way through the five W's of Vanguard. Here's the fifth one, witness. When Jesus is first in the church, we witness for Christ and we invite others to church, even though we might be terrified to do so. But we do it by faith, trusting him for good results. But when Jesus is not first for us, we love our relationships with unbelievers more than we care about where they will spend eternity. So, Jesus is the founder and leader of his church. I must resist the temptation to become a consumer at church because the world's telling me all week I'm a consumer and I deserve more. All right, it got too quiet in here, so I should probably move on. Next, verses 19 and 20. Paul wraps up his argument with, "'For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell.'" and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here's number four in your outline. Last point, you don't need to save any more space. Jesus is the reconciler and sacrificer for his church. And sacrificer is a word. I double-checked it in the dictionary. I needed an ER word to keep my outline looking nice and pretty. So, sacrificer came to mind. I went, wait a minute, is that a word? I gotta look that up. He's the reconciler and sacrificer for his church. Just to be clear, little details matter here in the text. Notice in verse 20, 
Paul says, and through him to reconcile, prepositions matter, to himself all things. This means Jesus made it possible for people to be reconciled to God. Not, everybody say not. For God to be reconciled to people. You see the difference there? God didn't wrong us. He, he didn't offend us. We're not the center of the universe. So it's a really important key there with the prepositions in verse 20. We are the ones that offended God. We are the ones that rebelled and left him. He made us. He loved us. We said, no, thank you. I want to do things my own way. But sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and then resurrecting him three days later made it possible for anyone who repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation to be reconciled, meaning brought back together, making peace with the Lord and that person. Because all people need to be reconciled back to God. God doesn't need to be reconciled to people because God didn't wrong people. Very important there in verse 20. So, why should Jesus be first in the church? Paul's answer to the question here in verses 19 and 20 is because he paid for the church. Everybody that's in the church was bought with the currency of his blood. Bought for a price, to use the turn of phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So the church was his idea, as we talked about a few minutes ago, but also the people in the church were bought by him. So he deserves to be first. Application. I should invite others to meet him, to be reconciled with him. I just, I just want to ask, when's the last time you prayed for the salvation of a coworker, friend, family member, or neighbor who does not know Christ? When's the last time you stormed the gates of heaven and said, Lord, would you please work in so-and-so's life, bring them to repentance and faith, convict them of their sin, and show them they need you. Are there any unbelievers the Lord's placed in your life that he wants you to share Christ with or maybe to invite the church? If so, I want to encourage you to step out in faith to do that and trust him with the results. And see what he'll do. We'll talk more about how we can effectively share our faith in Christ in a few weeks when we get to chapter 4, Paul provides some great counsel there. So I should invite others to meet him. Well, as we close, I wanted to share a quick story that I stumbled upon uh, this week. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Dr. E.V. Hill. Uh, he was the pastor for many years, a few decades, at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. Uh, I first heard of uh, E.V. Hill about 20, 25 years ago, he spoke at a Promise Keepers conference that uh, I went to, and man, it was clear he was on fire for Jesus. But, um, but E.V. Hill served as the senior pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles from 1961 until his passing in 2003. Well, Dr. Hill was a nationally known and sought-after speaker, as I mentioned, because he was passionate in his proclamation for the word. And he used to tell the story of an elderly woman in his church whom the congregation referred to as 1800. 
And that's because no one knew how old she was. And I think this is probably in the mid-20th century. They just guessed that she was born in the late 1800s. But this woman stood out in the church because she would always sit in the front row, and when the preacher began, whether it was Dr. Hill or maybe a guest speaker or somebody on associate staff, she would say loudly so everybody could hear it, as the sermon began, get him up there, get him up there. And, and this is you know, an African-American church, so there was always a, there was a rep- response and a give and a take between the preacher and the congregation. So, so it was common for people to speak out in, in, during the message. And, and so, of course, she's referring to get Jesus up on his throne. Well, after a few minutes, if she did not think the preacher was doing a good job getting Jesus on the throne, she would shout even louder and more often, get him up there, get him up there, preacher, let's go. Or if the preacher wandered off, you know, she would say things like, oh, no, he didn't go there, did he? No, no, no. Oh, no, preacher, no, no. But uh, Dr. Hill would tell the story and he would say, if I or any guest speaker or any one of my staff filling the pulpit did not get Jesus up there on the throne in the message, they were in for a very long Sunday with 1800. (laughs) So, I promise to do my best to get Jesus up there each Sunday but I could use your help. Because when Jesus becomes all about us, it's no longer all about him. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for locking Paul up in prison for two years so that he would write these letters to the church in Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi and Philemon. And Lord, we thank you that Paul didn't hold punches. He he was passionate for you and the church and he fought to protect the church from false teachers and those that would want to dethrone Jesus and enthrone people or angels or whatever else. Please, Lord, would you help us as a church to avoid that pit of allowing other things to get on the throne here at Vanguard. Would you help us, Lord, please, to fight, if necessary, to keep the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. Would you work in our lives, Lord, by your spirit and by your grace so that we can get him up there each Sunday and raise high the name of Christ in this community. Lord, for those that maybe have allowed other things to get up on the throne of their heart, would you convict them and show them what they need to change in their life? Would you encourage them and give them faith to make changes if necessary? Because we know, Lord, from your word and We know from Acts and throughout church history that when a a group of people all commit 
to putting Jesus on the throne of their hearts and getting him up there on Sundays. Revival breaks out. Big things happen. So Lord, we, we know we don't want to be the reason that you're not working here in our church or in this community. We don't want to hold back or limit what your spirit might want to do. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus to be the reconciler, to reconcile us to you. And Lord, if there is anyone here today that has not yet made that life-changing decision to repent of their sin and to place their faith and trust and to give their heart to Jesus, please, Lord, would you help them to do that? Would you reveal Christ to them? Would you help them to be born again so they can be forgiven and have peace with you and access to you in prayer? And most importantly, have the hope of eternal life. Lord, would you use our church as we commit to keep Jesus on the throne and to make Jesus first? Would you use us, Lord, to do amazing things in this community? pray this in the powerful name. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.